All right, can we open up our Bibles now to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 10. I encourage you to have your Bibles open or if you've got an app, uh, we're going to be reading a good chunk here this morning and um, want you to be able to follow along with the narrative here today as we jump back into our, our series. We're going to be beginning on verse 17 here this morning. I came across uh, this week the, the annual end-of-year announcement by Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, and uh, this is what um, they announced. In an age of deep fakes and post-truth, as artificial intelligence rose, the word of the year is, in 2023, is authentic. They, they come up with a year, uh, word at the end of every year that there seems to be a prominent searching and people categorizing and looking to bring understanding. And this year's word was authentic. Merriam-Webster's editor-at-large, Peter Skowalski, said, we see in 2023 a kind of crisis of authenticity. He goes on to say, can we trust whether a student wrote this paper? Can we trust whether a politician made this statement? We don't always trust what we see anymore. We sometimes don't believe our own eyes or our own ears. Authenticity, to be authentic. This is a couple of definitions within their, their, uh, um, their website uh, of authentic. Not false or imitation. True to one's own self, personality, spirit, or character, and conforming to its original. It seems like there's this desire to not just have imitation and what this editor at large is drawing attention to in issues of trust. Uh, can we discern what is real? Do we, we really want what is real? I, I, I kind of come with this question as well. Do, do we all really want what is authentic and real? And as I was processing this definition, I was, my mind went to some of what we've been uncovering in 1 Samuel so far. God, God has offered Himself all of these years to Israel, the real, the true God, the king, the true king of Israel, and yet Israel is, is dissatisfied with Yahweh, the Lord as king. It's like they want something else. They, they almost want an artificial king like the other nations, an imitation of something around them rather than the real thing of Yahweh, to trust in him. And our text is going to sort of enlighten this, this issue once again. And so before we dive in, though, I want to just recap where we've been uh, of late. We've been out of Samuel for a few weeks. But in chapter 8, we saw Israel coming to Samuel, this, the priest, sort of prophet, judge, leader, and demanded from him to make them a king like other nations. And this demand of Israel to have a king like other nations was rejecting God as their king. Yet after the warnings of what that meant, they said, we still want it, and God gives them a ruler. And we see in chapter 9 and chapter 10, we're introduced to a guy named Saul. He's trying to find his, his dad's lost donkeys, and through this sort of providential meandering and twist and turns, God's hand is behind it all. Saul ends up to, uh, in front of Samuel. Samuel has already been told by the Lord who Saul is. He secretly anoints Samuel, 
or Saul to be leader to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Saul is given all these signs of God's choosing. Uh, the Spirit comes upon him. There's all these implications that he should, that when the Spirit does come upon him, he should go and do all that his hands find him to do, which should be act against the Philistines, and yet he doesn't do anything. And that, that section ends with Saul withholding or hiding all of this from his uncle, Saul's uncle. So we're, we're left with this, what appears to be a certainty of God's choosing, yet some observable deficiencies in Saul. Is this guy legit? Is he the, this authentic king that Israel really needs, a king really of their own making? Saul was the one they asked for. We, we learned that, that actually what his name means, asked for. They get this guy. Is Israel going to get what they really wanted? And we're going to see today, actually, some characters actually come into question about the authenticity of this. They're going to ask, can this man really save us? So we observe God's providence in this section. All these anointings and signs all seem to be behind the scenes. And this is about to go public now before Israel. God is going to affirm for Israel this is his choice and bring more clarity to what the true king is to be like. We're going to look at really two sections this morning, verses 17 through 27, and then we'll be in going into chapter 11 as well. Can we pray and just ask the Lord to be with us this morning? God, thank you for your word. We thank you as we have been considering this morning that the word become flesh. You came and you you gave us yourself, Jesus, and in you is true life. And Jesus, as you taught us that we, we are branches connected to you, the, the vine. Um, Lord, we, we want to abide in you. You told us apart from you, we can do nothing. Our gathering here this morning is an expression of our dependence on you, that we want to be connected to you, that we need to remain in you and your words Lord, need to remain in us. And so as we come to your word, would you allow your word to, to, to go into us? And Jesus, it would help us be connected to you, to you, trusting you, to your rule in our hearts as King Jesus. And so help us by your spirit this morning to abide and to connect to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the king goes public. How does this happen? Let's look at verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. Saul gathers all of Israel, uh, more or less regathers Israel at Mitzpah. The, the last major moment that we saw this happen was just back in chapter 7. Samuel called all the nation there to repentance. He interceded for them uh, as a mediary between the Lord and because of their sin, they, he made a sacrifice, and God brought deliverance from the Philistines in that moment. And at that point, there was a place of, it was a place of worship, of renewed trust in God, and now they're gathering again. They ask for a king. Now the prophet gathers them what, what could be like this coronation. They, they know they're anticipating a king. Is this going to be the coronation Israel was hoping for? 
I kind of imagine this moment maybe as, you know, there's like parades, you know, there's kids sitting on their dad's shoulders, there's balloons, you know, there's flags, popcorns and puppies, I don't know, the band's playing away, and, and then we hear this in verse 18, and he, Samuel, said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, uh, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distress, and you have said to him, set a king over us. This coronation didn't seem quite like a party. It's a, it's a stern rebuke from the prophet of the Lord. And the Lord reminds them of what he did. It, it echoes chapter 8. He, he delivered them. This was their history. God working salvation on their behalf. Out of all their troubles and all of their afflictions. God was their king. He was their savior all along. And he gives us very clear example that, of his gracious and power, powerful deliverance of their slavery in Egypt, where they, they were powerless, they were slaves, and by his hand and by the blood of a lamb, he rescues. But verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you. And when we usually hear this from a prophet in the Old Testament, thus, thus says the Lord, as a reminder of God's faithfulness, and then God speaks of Israel breaking covenant faithfulness, usually there's a message that follows that of judgment. Keep that pattern in mind. Samuel gathers all of the people, and then we see this. Now, therefore, he tells them, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought up all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. Now, it's really necessary when we read the Scriptures, we want to be able to hear as the first hearers heard. As the, the biblical authors were writing, they were often connecting to other parts of biblical history. And we have seen several allusions already through uh, 1 Samuel to other Old Testament stories like Exodus and particularly uh, Judges. And we see this again here. Uh, this this gathering of tribes and casting lots likely would have registered another story. Israel being forced to assemble, casting lots, which was a form of divine decision-making that priests would use. They'd use sticks or rocks, kind of like a, maybe a flipping of coins would be kind of a modern idea. What could have been in their mind? Well, back in Joshua chapter 7, following the defeat of Jericho, by their obedience, God led Israel to victory. Then they go on to another city of Ai, and there they suffered defeat. Why? Well, God told them, because not all had obeyed the Lord. God commanded that there were to be no spoils taken from Jericho, and yet someone took devoted things from Jericho. Well, how did they uncover sort of the who done it by casting lots? The Lord instructed them to gather Israel, tribe, clan, and slowly they found out who the culprit was, and it was a guy named Achan. 
he had took a tunic and some, some gold and silver, and he had hidden these things uh, in his thing, in, among his possessions. So not only does the prophet Samuel's words seem sort of ominous and maybe ring of previous judgment, we have this reminiscent situation of lots being drawn because of Achan, an idol worshiper, who put stuff and hid it among his things that brought judgment on Israel. So, here again, tribes are to gather, Samuel's casting lots, and so we see in verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So, Lot lands on Benjamin, and then this uh, Matrite clan, which is part of the Benjamite clan uh, uh, tribe, and then Kish, and then Saul himself. The Lord was taking something that was a private anointing now and making it fully public to all of Israel. This was God's choosing. Saul was not chosen randomly or by chance or by some democratic vote. It was Yahweh's sovereign choosing. God's calling out this man to be the leader in Israel. So everyone starts looking around. Where's Saul? Has anybody seen Saul? Son of Kish. Saul! But when they sought him, we see in verse the second part of 21, he could not be found. So they inquired of the Lord again, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. This is it's kind of like, like what moments? The new king, this chosen leader of God's people that they so desired, the guy doesn't show up when his name is called. Is there a man still to come? Maybe Saul's not the guy? And they inquire again of the Lord before the Lord directs their attention to where he is. Now, this makes me think of something a very long time ago when you would be in a department store and uh, you could actually pay, a parent could page you in the store over the loudspeaker. I don't know if that ever happened to you. They, I think they probably outlawed that because of all the pranksters. Um, but I vaguely remember being paged by my parents in Kmart or something like that. And it was a very, very embarrassing moment. Uh, well, it's like Saul is getting paged. He's getting paged. And they're looking all over Kmart, and he's, he's like hiding in the storage department area or something like that, in the racks. And, and where, where is this king? He's hiding when his name is called. And there's a lot of speculation about what this hiding means and what it maybe is speaking to Saul's character. Some say it's evidence of him being humble. He just was very humble, and he didn't want, you know, sort of the spotlight. He didn't want glory or fear. I mean, we, we talked about sort of this ominous sort of judgment tone that is coming across, and maybe he's hiding, fearful. Or another option is, is a sense of, of disengagement, of passivity or, or cowardice. I believe this, this hiding is a troubling thing. Think how our story has unfolded. Even with all of the signs affirming him personally, Saul coming to him and anointing him, 
the multiple signs. Remember all the encountering of like the tambourine troop and the goat guys and the Holy Spirit coming upon him, identifying him. All of these supernatural divine interventions, prophetic words, God's words, now these lots fall on him. Shouldn't this be a sense of confidence that he would step in and lead appropriately? This is God's divine choosing, and he is hiding among the baggage. This hiding doesn't seem, seem humble to me. There seems to be an avoidance, or maybe there's a, a resistance here. He could not be found. One commentator actually drew attention to this same phrase of another Another story in our narrative when something could not be found. What, what were those? Those were, the, those were the donkeys, the stubborn farm animals. Israel wanted a guy who could be like a, a king like other nations and go out before them to fight their battles. And this is the one, the one hidden among the baggage. Well, Saul is finally rounded up because the Lord tells them where he is, and he, you know, kind of imagine him walking out on stage, verse 23, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward, and Samuel said to all of the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Here's the king you wanted. Do you see him? Whom the Lord has chosen, there is none like him. We obviously can't, we, we can't, it's speculation, but was there sarcasm in Samuel's tone? There is none like him. None like him. None like the other nations. I don't, I, I think there possibly could have been. And again, we see reference to Saul's height. We saw previously he was taller than anyone. He was more handsome than anyone. Remember, descriptions of outward appearance have not been very favorable thus far in our book. We saw earlier in Samuel a description of Eli's obesity, and that was, that was conveying something uh, not so stellar. Saul is taller than all. And to the eyes of Israel, he looks good. Compared to everyone else, like other nations, maybe he's towering over everyone, and it looks appealing. So they say, look at verse 24, and all the people shouted, long live the king. I mean, doesn't this seem odd in the placement of this situation? He's rebuked by the, uh, Israel is rebuked by the prophet for their rejection of God as king. They can't find the dude. He's hiding Finally, he comes out on stage and everyone cheers, hooray, long live the king. It's interesting to note this, though. Earlier, when Samuel picked Saul, he identified him as prince or leader of Israel. You do not see the word king used earlier, and nor does the Lord use that. Here is the first time we see Saul being referred to as king. But note, it's coming out of the mouths of the people. I think there's something revealing there. So what, do we, what should we recognize here? Following a prophet's rebuke of Israel's sin, which usually there's a pronouncement of God's judgment, a king is named. 
Are we to see Saul being put forward not so much as a blessing, but maybe something else for Israel's rejection of the Lord as king? And secondly, we do see that Saul is God's divine choice. That kingship, kingship is God's idea, but following his design and his plan for a king. This is what we see being made clear by Samuel. Look at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. So Samuel laid out what a true king was to be like. We looked, back, we looked at this back in chapter 8, and we read through Deuteronomy 17, which is God's law, uh, duties, and rules of what a king should be. He should be from Israel, whom the Lord chooses. He must not gather weapons and, and horses and wives and silver and gold, this sort of symbol of power and wealth unto himself. He should write a copy of God's law and carry it with him at all times, meaning he was submitted to the Lord and his word and the prophetic word and he would not to exalt himself and abuse his power and take advantage of his people, but humble to be a leader among his people like one of his brothers and sisters. And if the king would walk righteously, the kingship would be blessed. God's people would be blessed. And this is why it was laid up before the Lord, because it was God's kingship. His idea, not ultimately the emphasis on a human king. So after Samuel covered all this speaking and writing, this public ordeal, he sends everyone home, and Saul heads home, and then we read this very interesting thing in verse 26. God moving upon hearts in verse 26 and 27. So Saul went his way to Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. So God moves upon hearts like he did move upon Saul's heart, upon these men, men of valor, brave or valiant men to serve, it appears, along with him as warriors ready to fight along Saul's side, to be used by God for God's divine purposes. But then we also read of some other hearts. And all the cheering, there weren't, they weren't all happy about Mr. Saul. Read verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, Saint Saul, held his peace. So we, we're introduced to a, a problem here in our story. Some were not caught up in this sort of good-looking, handsome man. They sized him up and they thought, I'm struggling with the authenticity of this, this guy, Saul. So much that they despised him. How can this man save us? I guess the question, could, could, can any man save us? What a question. This is, this is how the chapter concludes. Now let's not forget, we've got this complicated leadership situation and there appears to be a, a solution now before us, but the author inserts this little, little aside that there's, there's a problem with, with trust in this guy. 
But don't forget, we've had all this trouble of surrounding enemies. Remember, the Philistines are breathing down their neck, and they, they are the, the enemies sort of to the west of Israel. And, and now we learn about this enemy to the east. What will this guy, Saul, do? There will be a test for him. Let's now turn to chapter 11. Our story breaks when you're reading Old Testament narrative, when you find a transition of a new character or a new setting, we, we know there's a, a change. It will be a test, an opportunity to see if Saul has the goods of a king. Look at verse 1. Let's read. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Man, that's rough. (laughs) So we meet this man named Nahash the Ammonite, the oppressing tribe to the east of Israel. Who were the Ammonites? Well, way back in Genesis, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they separated over some land issues, and Lot chose the land near Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that didn't go well, right? Cities were destroyed. Lot was rescued. Kids are learning that today. But Lot fled with his two daughters, and there was incest with those daughters. Not sure if they're going to be learning that this morning in there. With the two daughters, they had two children. One of the sons was named Ben-Ami. And his descendants were the Ammonites. And then later, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, they go through this area that Moses led them. They asked for help from the Ammonites. They refused, and God brought judgment on the Ammonites because of that. So the Ammonites were a a no-good pagan people with an enemy relationship with Israel. Nahash, this leader guy, whose name in Hebrew actually means serpents, (laughs) surrounds uh, these folks ready to attack Jabesh-Gilead, and the men were afraid. They were willing to make a treaty with him. Uh, we will serve you, serpent man. Seems like a very odd thing for people to make a deal with a snake. Note our story. The treaty proposed, well, he proposes a treaty only if they gouge out their right eyes. Well, it's absolutely disgraceful. This was a practice to do that they would do, an enemy would do to uh, somebody they were um, oppressing. One idea was that uh, from a military standpoint, soldiers would hold their shield on their left hand, and so their right eye was extremely important for battle because their left eye would typically be covered with their shields. And Nahash wants to tear out their right eyes, not just simply to, to disgrace um, uh, and spit in the face of Jabesh Gilead, but look what it says, to bring disgrace on all of Israel. The whole nation he was looking to disgrace. What were the elders' response to Nahash's disgracing tactic? Verse 3, so the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days rest or respite that we may send messengers through all of the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Well, this seems good to Nahash. Sure, have your seven days. Good luck finding anybody to save you. you know, I, 
I really don't think this could happen, is what he's thinking. You could have a month, whatever you need, but I guarantee you, my disgrace is coming. So, verse 4, when the messengers went to Gibeah of Saul, they're out reporting. They reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Why, why are they weeping? Well, they believe that no one can save them. I mean, as the readers, this, does this not seem so confusing to you? They're willing to make a treaty, a covenant with an enemy because there is no one to save them. What, what was this whole king thing all about? That they wanted somebody to save them from their enemies like the other nations, to fight their battles. This seems to absolutely undermine and be completely faithless to the very thing that they were crying out for. Where is a call to Yahweh? Oh yes, they rejected him as king, the one who saves them. No Samuel, no, no Saul. They're weeping, hopeless, disgraced, and about to get more disgraced. And we pick up in verse 5, camera pin, pans out and there's a guy walking in from the field. And behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people what, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Here comes Saul. Uninformed, <laughs> clueless about what's going on. I mean, didn't, didn't somebody like beeline and run and go tell this new king, Saul, about what was going on, and he's just walking in the field behind an oxen. Didn't somebody think, oh yeah, Saul, Saul, the one who is our king that should save us. He's the one, he should be one that should know what's going on. Maybe this is uncovering something of Saul's inad inadequacy, or maybe their trust in him. My mind goes back to those worthless fellows. Are they right or wrong? Can he save us? If you've been following along, this seems like a perplexing situation. I still am having a time getting my mind around it. We, they reject God as king, and yet God gives them one anyway. Yet Saul is the Lord's clear choice by sovereign divine choosing. And yet... In one sense, it's also Israel's choice. It's what they wanted. He's giving them what they wanted. And yet in this, this tension, this is the powerful, wonderful reality. Israel is God's heritage. It is God's people. His beloved people. And in God's sovereign mercy, He works on their behalf in spite of their weakness and confusion and rebellion and he's going to bring deliverance. Verse 6, you've got Saul who's sort of clueless, not knowing what's going on. But what does God do? God initiates. And the Spirit, verse 6, of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now we've been rehearsing these connections to other texts, and we go, this, this is very clearly a connection to a pattern we see in the book of Judges with the judges there, Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. God raises up a Savior. He pours out His Spirit with a supernatural power to work salvation for His oppressed people. And as in Judges, this is what Israel should see about kingship. It is God's work, 
God's work on behalf of them. Dale Davis so helpfully puts it. He says, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of the kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. So as Israel is enamored with kings, they must not look overlook their true Savior, God. It is by God's initiation, not by Israel. And so what does Saul do as he's overcome by the power of the Spirit? Look at verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. Then dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now, two times we have been told by our, our author about this, the reference of the city of Gibeah and connecting it to Saul. He went home to Gibeah, and we see this is Saul of Gibeah, now, we referenced this recently. Back in Judges, there was this horrific story that took place in Gibeah and involved rape, it involved murder, which eventually led to this inter-tribal war where only 600 Benjaminite men were left. Well, what provoked that war? Well, this woman who was raped and murdered, the Levite, and this was his concubine, he cut her up in 12 pieces and sent those 12 pieces throughout Israel to the 12 tribes in order to sort of muster them to battle against Gibeah. This is, this is like just reeks with gross, evil, disgusting sin. And so when you hear Gibeah, there's a stain associated with that name. I mean, it's like saying in Nagasaki or something, right? Something bad happened there. Saul, this leader chosen from Gibeah, is now doing something very similar, eerily similar. Remember the warnings of what a king like other nations would do that Samuel told them they would take, take, take. Something just smells a bit off about this threat that he gives. Saul is mustering people to war and does, what does he threaten them with? Of killing off their own oxen. Anyway, the story continues. Israel responds, and they come out as one man. Verse 8, when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came to the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Wow. They assemble, they defeat their enemies. The morning watch would be between 2 and 6 a.m. And so they start earlier all the way through till the sun, till the heat of the day. And by then, the Ammonites were defeated. God brings salvation to his people through his anointed chosen king by the power of his spirit. 
And the people respond to this victory. How do they do this? Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So we return to these troublemaker dudes who asked, how can this man save us? And now it's almost said in another way, bring those guys who said, shall, uh, shall Saul reign over us? Some wanted to put these men to death for this sort of sedition that seems to be communicated. Yet Saul, commendingly, quietly quells the people and attributes the victory to the Lord. He attributes victory to the one who is due glory. The Lord has worked salvation. The Lord has done such a thing. So Samuel then seizes this moment to establish afresh God's design for kingship in their hearts. Look at verse 14 as this chapter concludes. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. Sort of culminates to this sort of positive crescendo, right? Samuel gathers all of them at Gilgal. Now Gilgal was a special sort of location that Coming out of the Exodus, Joshua crosses the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And remember, he takes the 12 stones and he creates a memorial before the Lord, stones of remembrance to remember the Lord is the one that has done this delivering. The Lord is the one whom we need to trust and to fear in for our salvation. It is the Lord's might that has done such a thing. Let us remember. And so here at Gilgal, Samuel gathers them to renew the kingdom, meaning it was at this sort of place of their heart, the heart posture of looking to the true deliverer, the true savior, God as their true king, that they could find true worship. So at Gilgal, Samuel led them to renew the kingdom. Another translation would say to renew, he says, renew our allegiance to the kingdom. Well, it can't be renew allegiance to Saul's kingdom because this is, hasn't happened before. What is he speaking of? It's allegiance to the Lord's kingdom. It's an allegiance to the Lord as king. It was only after Saul's anointing, this public pronouncement, terms of the kingdoms were communicated and, and, and held to, and then victory was seen that Saul was made king before the Lord. Literally, it, it means to, to the face of the Lord. All to God, all to the true king, all true to his kingdom. And the response is worship and joy. And this, is, this ends on a hopeful place. This seems right. This is something we should be seeing. Those original hearers should be seeing that the king of God's choosing, who comes by his word and under his word, and by his power will be the one that will bring salvation to his people. Andrew Reed draws attention to this very important pattern in this, 
that we see in this first choosing of a king. We are told that God chooses the king. We see that in Samuel. Second, it involves the prophet by him anointing the king. Third, his king is endowed with power by God's spirit. And then lastly, his king, the king is publicly affirmed through mighty acts of deliverance. We actually see this exact same pattern that will eventually unfold with David. What's interesting, though, is after those two, we don't see it repeated again. Unfortunately, what we see through Israel's kingship is, is failure and failure and failure. We, we're seeing hints of this already with Saul. We will see that unfold, and we will see that in perfection with David as well. It, it leaves Israel's history, and it leaves us with this question. Will there be a true and faithful, a, an authentic, anointed king that will come? I love these questions that our text poses us in the narrative. I think they're ones that we can draw and consider, consider as well. Can, can this man save us? Or is there a man still to come? Can Saul, can David save to the uttermost? Or is there another man, another Savior still to come? Well, thankfully, the good news is there is one that did come. There was a man that did come, God's appointed chosen king, the anointed Messiah. The prophetic word confirms him. At his baptism, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry and mission. And in his mission, we see unfold in the New Testament that he came to seek and save the lost. And his work is displayed in all kinds of his power over creation, over the storm, over sickness, over disease, over demons, over Satan himself. And ultimately, his kingship is seen at the display of his victory in the cross, where he laid down his life and he displays his power to forgive, defeat sin, defeat our enemies in death. So can, can this man save us? Yes, Yes, he and he alone. This is why he came. This is why 1 Timothy 1 tells us the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. To save who? To save sinners. Saints, we were, we were hopelessly cornered by our sin in Satan's lies, the, the serpent himself. We had no ability to, our say, to save ourselves. And in a sense, we were much like Jabesh Gilead, sort of clueless about our opportunities or who could save us. All we could do is sort of like weep and be stuck in our captivity. We knew of no one to save us. And yet, this is, this is the work of God's grace for us. God graciously acts on our behalf even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. See, the gospel is the good news of what King Jesus has done to save us, all of his work, not what we do to save ourselves. So, who do we look to? We look to the man, Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Evil's threats, our sins, condemnation, God's man came. 
I love what Martin Luther would pen in 1529 that we, we beautifully are able to sing. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is He. God's man of choosing to save a people who could not save themselves. To save us from our enemies, to save us from our sin, to save us from our condemnation. As I, as I consider Nahash's approach, this sort of serpent man, it just reminds me of Satan's tactics. We, we drew attention to the garden earlier, Genesis 3. And we have in that this prophetic hope embedded in that text. This, this gospel message that there would be a serpent crusher that would come to take us, destroy Satan and all of his degrading, disgracing tactics. I don't know if you're here this morning and this condemnation and shame feels like the stronger voice than Jesus. I want you to hear Jesus' powerful voice and his powerful work on your behalf. He comes in all of his grace to clothe us in all of our disgrace with his righteousness and his forgiveness. That's why he can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This text just reminds me of Advent season. One of the things I love about Advent season, this remember Advent means coming or arrival. I love to contemplate God's initiation in that. Jesus initiated the saving work we desperately needed. He didn't wait. He, he didn't hide. He inserted himself into broken humanity to save us. And, and in his humanity, people ask those very same questions. Can this man, who is this man? How, there's nothing town, stable, no royal pedigree from a human, uh, human standpoint. A, a, a crucified Messiah. But thankfully, he is the right man who came. So is, is he on your side this morning? Meaning, are, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? He is the only one that can save. And his glory, his reign will be forever. Those people said, long live the king. Well, Jesus is the one who now reigns on his throne. and He will reign forever. And we get to come to this man, this king, Jesus Christ, our savior, and today, renew our hope and trust in Him. Renew our trust in King Jesus and His kingdom and His reign in our hearts. We say, Lord, Your kingdom come. Lord, Your will be done. So this morning, if, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior, would you do that today? Saints, for the rest of us, if you are placing your have placed your trust we get to come to a text like this and just find our hearts renewed in our faith and our hope in the one, the God-man who has come to save us. Save us from Satan. Save us from Satan's tyranny. Save us from our sins. And to let us know his grace and glory now forever. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for, thank you for the good news that comes the, by the, the better man who came. 
Jesus, you came and you save, you save to the uttermost, not by what we have done. Lord, we were clueless in ourselves, helpless in ourselves to rescue ourselves. And yet, Jesus, you came and you initiated, you worked your work on our behalf as the, the greater king, chosen, spoken of by the prophets, endowed by, your spirit, by the Spirit, the one who came in victory and worked salvation for us. And, and what we get to do is throw ourselves in faith and trust on you, Jesus. For all, all of Israel experienced salvation because of what you did through the work of this one man. And Jesus, we get to celebrate our victory and experience salvation because of what Jesus, you did, one man on our behalf. So renew our trust, Jesus, in you. Would you renew your, our hope and, and rest and confidence in Jesus, you, your kingdom, your reign in our hearts? And if there's others here today, some here today that have not put their hope on you, King Jesus, as Savior and King, would you move upon their hearts this morning to do that very thing and to know your salvation? For there is salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask this, Lord, for our good, our joy, and for your glory. Amen.